I ask you to pray with me for another moment, please. I want to welcome our streaming family as a part of our gathering today, and um, I want to invite you all, wherever you're finding yourself today, what we do from time to time as we pray here at Alamo City is that we will just open our palms, open our hands before the Lord. Scripture talks about the Lord desires to see men everywhere lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. I think that's in the place of praise, but that can also be in the place of prayer. But when we, when we open our palms like this, it means a couple of things. One is surrender. Lord, I give it all to you. Whatever the burden is, whatever the heavy place is, whatever the anxious place is, whatever the hurt place is that, that you may have walked in with uh, today, it's in our hands, the, the hands of our hearts. And Lord, let's just, let's just give it to him. Give those things to him as we pray. But then an open hand also means this. We receive, Lord, we receive whatever it is you want to give, we receive, we receive, amen? So let, let's just, if we would, you join me. Lord, we, we lift our hands up to you today as an expression of our hearts. The things that individually are heavy or confusing or sad, or that have hurt us, Lord, we give to you. We can't carry them. It doesn't, we don't know how we get out from under the load, but we're offering them to you. We just ask you, please, Lord, take, take these things. You've said that we're to be anxious for nothing, but in everything with prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, to let our requests be made known unto you. And then the peace of God, your peace, Lord, which passes all understanding, you, you promised to give us. So, Lord, we're here this morning needing your peace in exchange for the places where we're anxious. Lord, I ask that you would cause this to not just be a, a general prayer, generalized for a crowd, but, Lord, you'd let us know that this really is a cry from our hearts that you are hearing today, right now. And then, Lord, with open hands, we, we ask you to fill us. Fill these hands. Fill our hearts, Lord. Would you pour out your Spirit upon us and enable us to hear what you want us to hear? Give to us, Lord, what you want us to receive. Lord, I want to thank you for the generosity and the faithfulness, the obedience of your people as, as they've just been so regular and so faithful and so joyful in bringing tithes and offerings into the house of the Lord. And Lord, as a result of that, from this place, things have been done that could never have been done without that collective generosity. And Lord, I ask you to bless your people back. I ask you to do just exactly what you said you would do. When we honor you with the first of that which you've blessed us with, then, then you, will, you will honor us. And I, I pray for financial, material, physical blessings upon your people who have faithfully honored you and that you will do. We trust you to do what you have said that you would do. Beyond the physical, beyond the financial, you know the deepest places where we really need your supply. So, Lord, supply us, Lord. Supply your people with that which is in your heart to give. And I offer this prayer in behalf of all of us joining together in the name of Jesus. In the name of Jesus. In the name of Jesus. And all the Lord's people said, Amen. 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 I want to ask you to turn in your copy of the Scripture 
to the passage that we looked at last week. I want to talk some more, spend a little more time on this matter of the joy of Jesus. What is it, what was it that made Jesus happy? What put a smile in his heart? What was it that was so great of a joy that kept him going when it was extremely tough, even when his life was being threatened, even when people who, who, who should have recognized him and should have, should have honored him as the Son of God just flat out rejected him, mocked him, turned their backs on him, and eventually came up with a plan to have him put to death. What was the joy that kept Jesus going? Now, when we read this section in Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 12, we need to keep in mind that Jesus' example is, is there not to be the primary focus of the teaching of the writer of the Hebrews at this point. The example of Jesus is there for the purpose of our being encouraged in the pursuit of the mission that God's given us, in the pursuit of the calling that the Lord has given us. He'll say, you, you fix your eyes on Jesus when the persecution comes, when the opposition comes. I want to set this, reframe this though a little bit, because sometimes we think of these writings and, and these wonderful sections in Scripture as, as being primarily for a church setting, primarily for a Bible study group, or primarily for a man or a woman, younger or older, in, in their spiritual pursuit of things. But I just want to say this again. I know some of you might get tired of hearing this, but I don't, I don't believe that the Lord just interested you in where you are on Sunday morning. You know, I, I don't believe that it's just about whether or not you're in church and you're doing something in church and what do you got going in church and where, you know, how long, how many times have you been to church this week? I, I, I just, I think that's just drawing the circle too small. That, that this, this is, this is one morning out of seven mornings. This is one morning out of a whole bunch of hours. And the and the bottom line is, we're not going to spend very much of our week in the church house. We're going to be spending our week where we spend a normal week, and that's, that's out doing what the Lord has given us to do, and I trust in, in, in many, many cases it's what he's called you to do. And that's not just to be a Bible teacher. That's not just to stand behind a microphone. That's not just to be circulating with, with, with Christian people and church people. It, it, thank goodness that you know, the, Lord, the Lord has said, I've called you to be the light of the world. You know, and you, you, put, you put light in a room and it's great, but what about out there? You know, the Lord wants us to be a light where he has assigned us to be. So this matter of the joy of the Lord, the joy of Jesus um, is, is, a, is a very important part of, of, of our being able to be what the Lord is, has assigned us to be in the world, in, in the world, not just in the church, but in the world. Okay, so let me read this again, and we'll follow along. I'm reading from the New American Standard translation of the Scripture. Now, we're going to come back and look at some of these words that are English words that have rendered some Greek words, the old original uh, writing or language that the, that the New Testament was written in, just so we can get it a little deeper. Therefore, the writer of Hebrews says, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses, surrounding us. Now, you'll remember he's just been talking about Moses and Noah and Abraham and David and Samuel and Sarah and wonderful Old Testament Bible characters who had unique assignments from God on their lives, unique callings of God upon their lives. Now, they were business people. Understand, David was a governmental uh, person. He was a military leader. Abraham was a businessman. He, 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 ran, he, he ran a cattle operation. 
He, he would oversee flocks, and he had camels, and he had, he had to feed all of those, those animals, and he had to take care of, of, of the ones who worked for him. Don't, don't, they, they weren't just sitting around staring at a scroll, okay? They, they, weren't just, they weren't just all the time sitting around talking Bible facts, you know, doing, having the, the whole conversation wasn't Bible trivia. They had to run businesses. They had to deal with people. They had, they had physical, material, literal points of opposition and challenge. And the Lord met them right where they were. He called them to a specific mission for him in their lifetime in the middle of their assignment where they were. Okay? They, they weren't priests. They, they, Samuel was a prophet. But, but none of these others that, that really are listed in, the, in the, that Hebrews chapter 11, that listing of the great uh, hall of faith, the heroes of faith in a sense, they, they were people who had secular occupations. They, can I get a witness? Okay? Now, I, I, I want you to hear that. I, that, that this, the, the Bible is not written for just a bunch of preachers. The Bible is not written to just help a bunch of folks who have, who have nothing else to do with their time than to stare at the Scripture. I know that sounds a little sacrilegious, but, but we've, got to, we've got to understand. He wants to meet you and be with you Monday at noon. The real Jesus wants, wants you to know he's present with whatever you're doing Thursday afternoon. When you've got to wake up in the morning and figure out how to pay your bills and how to get along with that person who's working for you, who's fussing with this person who's working with you, and how to keep them from blowing up the small business, Jesus is there with you. He wants to help you. Okay, so, so with that as a little bit of a running room start here, let's go back into this again. Therefore, since we have a great cloud of witnesses, they are witnessing of the faithfulness of God. They're witnessing of the truth and power and reality of, of the living God in the middle of whatever they were walking through and whatever God assigned them to do. They are witnesses to the fact that God is real, that he loved them, that he was willing to use them. And if he's done that for us, then he can do that with you and for you. We're surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. Since we are surrounded by this cloud of witnesses, let us also, let us like they did, lay aside every encumbrance, everything that would hinder following the Lord in the calling down the journey, on the road, in the pursuit of that which he's given us to do, and the sin which so easily entangles us. Let us lay aside the encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. Now, let me, can we just think about that a minute? The sin which so easily entangles us. Did you know that the devil knows? That you, there are some things about you and there are some things about me that if he just gives us a whiff of, we're liable to get on the trail and trail that one and stay after it until we find There are certain things about me you, or, or about you, throw, throw a particular non-attractive sin at you and you didn't walk away from it and just, just never even knew it came through the door. We've got some that are, we're not easily attracted to. But there's some things that are wrong in the sight of God, okay? Things that grieve his heart that we can choose more easily to fall into than we can other things more easily fall into. So he's saying... Evidently, it was true for David, it was true for Abraham, it was true for Sarah, it was true for Joshua, it was true for, for Samuel. Pick the name. There was, there was something about each one, each one of those lives that they could easily give into, that they had to make a choice not to go there in order to be able to finish and finish well and finish on target that which the Lord had called them to do. And in a sense, they were giving witness to the fact that it's worth the price to pay to walk away from this stuff that may be easy to do, and we go there when we're weak or go there when we're tired or go there when we're mad, but it's better to not go there 
and to stay locked on the course that the Lord's given because the result, the end result is better going here than it is falling off over there. But so, so what he's saying is the, these were not just a bunch of super spiritual people in, in the sense that they didn't have the same kind of struggles that you and I can struggle with. He's saying that they had to make some choices and we need to make some choices if we're going to finish strong and finish well and finish on target as they did, laying aside the encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. And then it says, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. The Lord set the course for David. He didn't choose to be the eighth son out of eight. He didn't have anything to do with that. He didn't choose when he was born. He didn't choose Saul, his opponent, who would be his greatest enemy. And in each one of the, these, these, these major characters in, in the Scripture, they didn't choose what they were doing. The Lord chose the course for them. He says here that we are to understand that these, this great cloud of witnesses that can give the witness that God is faithful, that the Lord will help you, that he will strengthen you, and it's better to go with God than it is to fall off in a bar ditch, they, they can also... That they also had this truth that they found themselves in a spot, in a place that was set for them, that was prepared for them. Now it's interesting that that word for race, the race that is set before us, the word race there, it's only translated race in the English copy of your, of your New Testament in, in this one spot. The word is used in other places, but the, and the word comes from a, a, a word that means force or violence. It, it has to do with a contest for victory or, or for um, mastery of something. The, it, it's a Greek word, and it was used with regard to the Greek Olympic uh, game. And it could be used to, to describe a, 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 a contest of running or boxing or wrestling. But it was all about struggle. It's all about conflict. It, it's, um, it, it's about a challenge. It, it's, not just, it's not just about a race. So it really could, could read this way. Just like these others have given us they can encourage us through their witness of God's being faithful in their conflict. So we're going to need to set aside the encumbrances and set aside the sins which Jesus set us for the conflict, the, 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 the contest that God has set for us. It, it, it carries with it the idea of, of a competition in a sense, but more than a competition. It, it's a struggle. It, it's a fight. You, I don't know how long it's been since you've been through a wrestling match, you know, in a, in a physical sense. You get in a wrestling match in a verbal sense, and it can wear you out. But, but wrestling, boxing, running carry with it, carry with it the idea of, of exertion and, and having to press on and having to keep going. He's saying that the Lord sets those courses up for us. And I know somebody said, well, amen, he sure set me one up with my marriage, you know, or he sure set one up with my family, or he sure set one up with the place where I work. Instead of that being something that's supposed to blow us away and surprise us, as if real Christian Christians don't ever have those things to deal with. I mean, if you're a real Christian, everything's supposed to be always smooth here and always easy here. That's just not the way that it's described the Christian life to be any place in the New Testament. It is, there are struggles and there are places of conflict and there are places of competition between the good in us and the evil in us and sometimes outside of us in order for us to learn the strength that the Lord wants us to lean on and draw from every day that we live. So here he continues to say, so that we may run, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. The word endurance 
means is from, from a verb that means to stay under. To stay under. To, to not be checking out, to not be running. It, it, is, a, it is a quality that, um, that, that carries with it the idea of, of regardless of what the circumstances are, there is a determination and a, a resolve to stay under and in the midst of whatever the circumstances are in order to finish the course. Endure. Endure. Hunker down. Plant your feet. Don't run. Stay with it. You know, um, I remember some years ago as a much younger man that I had, I had some older fellas say to us as a group of younger men being mentored by these older guys. They're just saying, you know, young men, you just need to realize that you will move into some positions of leadership by default. In other words, there will just be some folks who don't finish, who, who don't complete, who don't fulfill the assignment that they have been given. And when they can no longer do it, you may not be the brightest crayon in the box, but because you're the only one they can find and you're the only one still there and you're the only one still after it, you get that position. It's amazing how true that can be. We might want to think it's just our brilliance and our determination and, and our personality and that's why they picked us. No, it's probably because you're the only one there or it could be that. There's something about endurance. There's something about not quitting. There's something about refusing to give up. I heard a man say one time to, to uh, some, some younger men out at a ranch, he said, don't ever quit. It's a bad habit to stop. Don't ever quit. It's a bad habit to stop. That's the truth. There's something about this, this ability to stay with the assignment that God's given you that just by, it doesn't mean you're going to do everything perfect or that everything's going to be easy. But the end result is you will end up where God wants you to be and where there'll be a sense of victory and joy and accomplishment in your life. Just don't quit. Don't run. All right, so, so that's, that's this first verse. But look at verse 2. And again, this is all about us in our race, in our assignment, in our struggle in this life. Run with endurance, the race is set before you. And then he says, fixing our eyes on Jesus. Fixing our eyes on Jesus. Fix well, we can't, Lord, physically we can't see you. We're not even sure that the pictures or the paintings that have been drawn of you are accurate representations of you. How are we going to fix our eyes on you when we can't see you? Back to where we've been for the last 40 years. It is the function of the Spirit of Jesus to make real and visible spiritually, real, tangible in the spirit realm, the person of Jesus. Jesus says the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of himself, he will take of mine and he will disclose it to you. When we're, Paul would say, no one stood with me, but the Lord stood with me, and he delivered me from How did he know the Lord was standing with him? He knew the Lord was standing with him because the Spirit of Jesus made the presence of Jesus thick and real and tangible wherever Paul was. That was not just to be for Paul in prison with the threat of execution hanging over his head. That's intended for you at work. That's, in, that's intended in business meetings. That's in, in, intended in places where we need to make choices to, to, to stay with something or to change. Fixing our eyes on Jesus. It, it gives us permission to pray, Lord, Lord, I need to see you. In the sense, I need to know that you're here. Help me to be able to fix my eyes on you. My heart wants to do that, but I can't do it unless you fill me with your spirit, unless you open my eyes 
so that I'll be able to see you and know that you're here. Fixing our eyes on Jesus. The understanding of that, the, the, the underlining meaning, is, meaning of that is that it is by the filling of the Spirit of you as an individual believer that you will literally be able to sense that you are fixing your eyes on the person of Jesus Christ. He'll become real to you, vivid to you. I mean, fixing our eyes on Jesus, and it's not talking about when I'm at church or when I'm in a Bible study or when I'm even alone in my quiet time with the Lord. The idea is that wherever you are, work, home, wherever you are, Lord, I ask you to give me the ability to fix my eyes on you, Jesus. Now, that's not the Jesus hanging on the cross. Let me get this visual image of Jesus hanging on the cross. No, he's not still on the cross. He's not still dying. He's not still bleeding. He's not still suffering. He's alive. He's risen. Full of power. Full of authority. Lord, help me to see you as you really are. Open my eyes, Lord. Open my eyes. Fixing our eyes on Jesus. I mean, sometimes... You know, if you don't read it in the light of the filling of the Spirit and what only the Spirit can enable us to do, we can get to beating ourselves up. Well, I'm trying. I ain't seeing nothing. Truth is, I ain't seeing nothing. I'm seeing Jesus. I just see this lion trying to come in and, and, and devour my household. I, 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 all I'm seeing is these other, these other things physically. Lord, I'll never, I'll never be able to see you in the sense of fixing my eyes on Jesus unless you by your spirit help me. I don't care how many Bible verses you know. I don't, I don't know, it doesn't matter how, how familiar you are, Old Testament, New Testament, how many Christians you know, how many people who are like Jesus to you, you may know. It is only by the filling of the Spirit that I'm going to be able to fix my eyes on the real Jesus. So, Lord, fill me. Fill me. Help me. Have mercy on me. Fill me with your spirit. Fixing my eyes on Jesus, the author. Now, watch this. The author and the perfecter of faith. Another way to translate that is, to put it this way, to put an apostrophe S after faith. Faith's author and perfecter. If I said, the house of Shirley, the house of Shirley. Another way to say that is Shirley's house, right? Shirley's house. You've got that particular case of a noun in the English language, the possessive case, Shirley's house. When he's, when he's saying here the author and perfecter of faith, we could literally read it, faith's author and perfecter. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, faith's author and perfecter. What did we say faith was? Faith is that which you have been persuaded is true. Faith is that which you have been convinced is true. It's not a wish. It's not a hope. It is something that you have been persuaded is true. Who does the persuading? The Lord does the persuading. Jesus by his spirit does the convincing. Are fixing our eyes on Jesus, faith's author, the, the one who initiated, who originated what it is that I'm persuaded of or convinced of. And he is also the one who will bring to conclusion and completion that which he has convinced me and persuaded me is true. We, we, we need to broaden our sense of what faith is, and, and quit beating ourselves up when we feel like, when we sense we don't have any faith. Well, the, the problem is not in you necessarily or in me necessarily because I can't gener up, generate enough persuasion and convincing. That's something that I can't see is really going to happen or is true. That is the soul, and I'm going to tell you, folks, this will unlock a key and set you free from a whole bunch of self-condemnation on this thing of faith and trust. It is not up to you to generate persuasion that something God has said is true. It is up to the wonderful work of the Spirit of Jesus to persuade you, to convince you, 
And on the basis of that, it doesn't matter what does happen or what doesn't happen that's consistent with what you dreamed or what you're believing for or, or something that is contrary to that. If he has convinced you, if he has persuaded you, it's rock solid. You know it's going to happen. It's just a matter of time. It's not a matter of if or when. It's just a matter of when, I should say. Yeah, yeah. Now, this, this verse right here and this, this, these few words in this verse hammer that home. Where does faith initiate, originate? Jesus originates. Where, where, is, where is what we're believing for? How is that going to happen? Who's responsible for the outcome? Jesus is the completer. Jesus is the originator, the initiator, and Jesus is the completer. Of that which he has persuaded me is true. Of that which he by his spirit has convinced you is true. Amen. Amen. So I hear this. I, you know, I can feel it within my own heart at times. I hear it so often. I just don't have enough faith. I just don't have enough faith. Well, quit staring at yourself. Quit, quit, quit trying. Well, I just don't have enough faith. Well, you're right. I don't ever have enough. I won't ever have any. Where does, where does that come from? Where does faith, which means to be persuaded or be convinced of, where does that come from? It comes as a result of a work of the Spirit of Jesus freshly filling you. If there's some new insight, new something once you believe you for, believe him for, but it, but it also can mean he's the one who keeps the fresh faith. Wait a minute. Keeps the fresh faith. Keeps the faith fresh. He's the one who keeps the fresh no, I go again. Keeps the faith fresh. He's the one who does that. Not, not you just say, well, I wrote it down in my book on the time that, it, that I believe God spoke it to me, but it's just kind of waned since then. Well, go back to the one who gave it to you in the first place. Lord, if this is really from you, I ask you to fill me freshly. Convince me all over again. He, he understands that we're weak. He understands that we can't see into the spirit realm. He understands that he's going to need to do things for us that we can't do for ourselves. And if he's wanting us to believe him for something, then he needs to be the one who persuades us and keeps the persuasion fresh. And he desires to do that. But what, what we don't do is ask him for that. We, we get to beating ourselves up. Well, why, why can't I just trust him? Why can't I just trust him? Why can't I just believe? He's brought me through so many things before. I don't know why I'm this, I can't trust him on this one. Well, it's because he's the one who has to persuade that this new deal is just like the one that we went through before, and he's just as real right here, and he's going to take you through this one just like he did that one before. But he's persuading you and convincing you. You're not having to talk yourself into it. Now, there's freedom in that, folks. There's freedom in that. You know, we walk in sometimes in dealing with brothers and sisters. Well, why? You know, I'm doubting, and we just say, well, why don't you just need to have faith? You, you just need to have faith. That sometimes, that doesn't help a bit. Because if we could have faith, we wouldn't be having this conversation. The reason you're telling me something that I know that I don't have, and I don't need you double-dipping the common day condemnation on me. What I need you to say to me is, Spirit who impressed you and convinced you and persuaded you the first time is the same one who can persuade you and convince you this time. Let's go to prayer and just ask the Lord to refresh your faith, refresh your persuasion. Let's ask him to do it all over again. That's where I'll pray with you instead of you better get your faith. You just say, you just need to believe. You just need to believe. Oh, shut up. Doesn't help a bit. Doesn't help a bit with that kind of condemning let me get off of that. <laughs> Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith. Will you let that line in? Jesus, you are the author of that which I am to believe you for. And you are the completer. You are the perfecter. You are the one who causes it to be exactly what and even beyond what you called me to believe you for. You are the author and you are the finisher of that which you have persuaded me I am to trust you for. Amen. <laughs> sometimes a preacher has to help himself preach sometimes. The author and perfecter of faith. And then here's this line. Who for the joy set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, 
and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him. Now the word consider is a word that means to study. It doesn't mean to just have, take a casual glance or, or to refresh your memory of some of the things he said, some of the things he did. It, it is an academic word. It, it's even a legal word. It, it is to research, to dig deep, to, to ask for the understanding of the shades of meaning. Consider, consider him. Consider deeply. Consider greatly. Consider personally. Consider longingly him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself so that you may not grow weary and lose heart. The idea being that if Jesus went through opposition, the degree of opposition that by his grace we don't have to walk through or haven't had to walk through yet, well, it was hostility bringing him to the point of physical death. Our eyes fixed on Jesus and studying him and knowing he didn't flinch, knowing he didn't back up, knowing he didn't compromise. He stayed the course the Father had given him, and he endured great hostility against himself. We consider that about him. His spirit is the one convincing, persuading us of what he's called us to believe him for, and the result is we won't lose heart. We won't lose heart and give up and quit. He didn't, as he is our example, but more than that, as it is his spirit working inside us, he enables us to stay the course as he stayed the course. And the result is it's finished. The goal is accomplished. We rejoice in the goal. But now let's go back to this, this statement who for the joy set before him endured the cross. He endured the cross, his own brutal, torturous murder. He endured the cross, and he endured the cross because the joy that was working in his heart was greater than the fear of what men would do or the extent of the physical suffering that we'd put upon him. Some way or another, the joy in Jesus so far outstretched, the threats, the shame, the pain of people, that he was able to keep going and he didn't quit. The joy, and we, we mentioned this last week, but it's just, it's so central, it's so vital, it's so critical to, to our understanding what it is that the Lord would be wanting us to do, what he would be calling us to do. He's not going to call you to do something that from the very beginning all the way to the end is going to be unbroken torture and, and, and misery. Because he knows that we are so wired in our humanity that unless it is something that we can see joy in, we don't stay with it. Now, the joy for Jesus, the physical, temporal joy, was not what he's speaking of here. Because there would be times when there, was, there would be cruelty perpetrated against him but it was the joy of what, of what was promised to him, the joy of what the Lord, had, his Father, had spoken to him, the, 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 the joy of some outcome that was bigger than anything in the immediate. Jesus would say to Nicodemus, one of the rulers of the Jews, you must be born again. you got religion all over yourself but you must be born again. And then he goes on to say, for God so loved the world. He so loved the world. He wasn't so mad at the world that he sent Jesus to send Jesus to judge, to decimate 
all of the wickedness and all of the sin and all the godlessness. It wasn't for God so was so angry at the world. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Jesus was speaking autobiographically. He's given his own testimony to Nicodemus. For God so loved this world that he gave me. He gave me. Now, here, here's the, the, the meaning of that word to give. is not to give primarily as a gift or, or to give as something beneficent. It means to give up for execution. God so loved the world that he gave me to be executed. Executed for the sins of the world. So that, so that those who would believe in me would not have to perish. They perish if there is no forgiveness for sin. That, that's a law. That, that, that's, that's a spiritual law. It is beyond the, and above the laws of Congress or the laws of the UN. It is an inviolable law of the universe in the spirit realm. The wages of sin is death. There is no forgiveness of sin apart from the shedding of blood. So for Jesus to take the sins of the world upon himself, it would require that he was given up for execution, which he was. And he would say, in speaking of, in that moment of his execution, impending execution, you don't have the right, Pilate, to take my life from me. I lay my life down. The Father's given me 12 legions of angels to protect me, and I call on them and whenever I want to call on them. I choose not to call upon them because my mission is to be executed as the Lamb of God slain before the foundation of the world so that captives can be set free. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever would believe in him would not perish, but would ever laugh, have everlasting life. The last part is the fulfillment of the joy. That, that those who would believe in him would live forever instead of those who would be without him would die forever. I want you to find the book of the Revelation for just a moment. The joy set before Jesus. The joy set before him. He, he, would, he would have to endure the cross. He would have to put up with shame spoken against him by those who should have approved him and applauded him and blessed him and loved him. But instead they tried to shame him. But greater than their shame, greater than the threat of the, of the suffering of the cross, was this dream. This sense of what would happen as he finished the call that God had given him. Revelation chapter 5, verse 8. And when he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb. Who is the Lamb? Behold, the Lamb of God, John would say, who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus, the fulfillment of all of the sacrificial animals in the Old Testament covenant, the Lamb of God slain before the foundation of the world in the mind and plan of God. This is Jesus. This is the book of Revelation is a revelation of Jesus. It's spoken, it speaks of how it's all going to end up. It's, it's prophecy, but it is also symbolism and imagery but it speaks of how it's all going to end up. The revelation of Jesus, the unveiling of Jesus, the, 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 the curtains parting and who Jesus really is and how it's actually going to happen and how it's all going to come down. When he had taken the book and the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each one having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. This is in heaven. This is John, the youngest of the disciples, in this vision transported to heaven. 
Verse 9, and they sang a new song, say, Worthy art thou to take the book and to break its seals. For thou wast slain and didst purchase for God with thy blood men from every tribe. Now, you'll notice if, you, if you're a New American Standard, you're going to see that that word men is in italics, right? That means that word is not in the original text. They put it in there to make the sentence read easier. But it literally means people, not just men, not just the male gender. Thou wast slain and didst purchase for God with thy blood people, men and women from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And thou hast made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. The joy of Jesus, the joy of Jesus purchasing from every tribe, every tongue, every people, and every nation. Verse 11, and I looked, and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, and the living creatures, and the elders, and the number of them was myriads of myriads, and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing and every created thing which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them I heard saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. And the four living creatures kept saying amen and the elders fell down and worshiped. The joy the joy that was set before him. Do you see that? The joy that was set before him. It it still hasn't been completely fulfilled. All the redeemed who will trust in Jesus are not, we're not all in heaven. All have not yet believed. It's still a work in progress. But the joy of this happening set before Jesus gave him the energy, gave him the heart to press on through the cross. It was the joy of this happening that energized Jesus and kept him on his course. All right, but also a part of all of that is 1 John 3, 8. And for this purpose, the Son of God appeared, that he might destroy the works of the devil. For this purpose... The Son of God appeared, John writes, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Now, I realize joy and destruction seems to, seem to be two mutually opposite terms. But if you had been in heaven with Jesus seeing all that the devil was going was doing on this earth, all the lying, all the cheating, all the death, all the suffering, all the deprivation, all the disease, you'd seen that and known that, that Satan was doing what he was doing. Keep in mind that Jesus didn't just come into being when he kicked the first time in Mary's womb. Jesus is one and the same with the God in Genesis 1.1. All things came into being through him, Jesus, the Word, John 1. And nothing has come into being that has come into being apart from him. So all those millennia, before Bethlehem. We don't know how long eternity past was, but the scripture says that Jesus is the lamb slain before the foundation of the earth. The plan was formulated before there was ever a planet earth. And for all of those millennia, as Satan was raging upon this earth and doing what he can do, all that time, Jesus would know that there would come a time 
Oh, my goodness. When he would leave heaven, he would divest himself of all of the authority in heaven. He would come to this earth as a man filled with the Spirit of God. And he would systematically, categorically, individually destroy the works of the devil. For this purpose, the Son of God appeared that he might destroy the works of the devil. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. You, you, you bring Jesus into any kind of devil fight, and you automatically have the upper hand. So, in Luke chapter, excuse me, Mark chapter 5, when you read, read some of these stories, and you think back about how long Jesus had been looking forward to this encounter, It'll cause the socks inside your Tony Lama boots to roll up and down. This wasn't just a, oh, by the way, he had known this was coming. It was a part of the joy to defeat the devil, to unmask the devil, to, to neuter the devil in these people's lives as an example of what God in Christ through his spirit would be able to do from the time of Jesus Life on this earth only until the time he returns again. Galatians, or excuse me, Mark 5, verse 1. And they came to the other side of the sea, into the country of the Gerizines. And when he had come out of the boat, immediately a man from the tombs, with an unclean spirit, met him. And he had had his dwelling among the tombs. No one was able to bind him anymore, not even with a chain, because he had often been bound with shackles and chains. And the chains had been torn apart by him and the shackles broken in pieces. And no one was strong enough to subdue him. And constantly, night and day, among the tombs and in the mountains, he was crying out and gashing himself with stones. Seeing Jesus from a distance, he ran up and bowed down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, and the demons speaking through him, What do I have to do with you, Jesus, son of the most high God? I implore you by God, do not torment me. They were using the man, dwelling in the man, using his body. For Jesus had been saying to him, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And he was saying, what is your name? And they gave the name Legion. Then the amazing thing is, they started asking Jesus for permission. Don't, don't, don't send us into some wanderless place, in, into some nameless place. Let us go into those hogs over there on the side of the hill. Give us permission to possess the hogs. He gave, Jesus gave them permission. The hogs, you remember that story, they ran down the cliff, all drowned, 2,000 of them. Verse 14, and their herdsmen ran and reported in the city, out in the country, and the people came to see what it was that had happened, and they came to Jesus and observed the man who had been demon-possessed sitting down, clothed, and in his right mind, the very man who had the legion, and they became frightened. The joy that was set before him to destroy the works of the devil. But you see, that the devil doesn't just work in those kinds of extreme possessions resulting in pain and sickness. But he works in lies too. The devil can tell a lie and make it sound like the gospel truth. He's got a PhD in understanding you. 
Ph.D. in human understanding. He can quote the scripture like a saint. He can sing the songs of the church like the lead soprano in the, in the soprano section. He, he, can, he can preach. He can, he can cry. He is a transformed angel of light, Paul said. So he can appear and operate in places of light, but he's false light. And he tells lies. And one of the lies that he tells is a lie to justify so-called lovers of God, followers of God, to justify them in their prejudice, to justify them in their condemnation of those who don't meet up to their standards, lifestyles, professions, whatever it would be. The devil will give Bible-quoting people Scripture to justify their position of not having to mess with the riffraff or the no-goods or the ones too far out there. For this very purpose, the Son of God appeared that he might destroy the works of the devil. Now watch this, Luke 15. It's just hard to stay away from Luke 15. Now all the tax gatherers and the sinners were coming near to listen to him. Now they wouldn't walk across the street to hear a Bible-quoting Pharisee who could tell them all the things that they had done wrong and were doing wrong if they even would talk to them at all. But some way or another, there was something about the real Jesus. Then and now, that is attractive to ones who may be bound up, ones who may have chosen practices, chosen friends, chosen a direction for years on end. That's a thousand miles away from what it would seem to be the heart of God. But some way or another, instead of those feeling condemned, they feel respected. They feel somehow wanted. They feel loved, loved. But the devil comes and he tells Bible-quoting people, you have reason to not have anything to do with. You don't have to have relationship with. You don't have to take time to show mercy and kindness and the gentleness of Jesus to ones because they're too awful. They're so far gone. Would you just come with me and let us slam into Luke 15? In that crowd were the tax gatherers and the sinners, the moral destitutes. But they couldn't get enough of Jesus. They flocked to hear him. But also there were the ones, not nearly so much to hear Jesus to approve of what he was saying, to embrace what he was saying, as they were there to criticize him. So, so they're the ones who say, both the Pharisees and the scribes, no, you poke them and a Bible verse comes out. All right? Th these are not just casual scripture people. You poke them and the scripture comes out. You bump into them and they're liable to say, verily, verily, and as much as whither. Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. Receive, for that verb, that Greek verb, it means to receive, and the adverb goes with it, to receive kindly, to receive with respect to receive with recognition of their human dignity. And that torqued the scribes and Pharisees because they were listening to the devil's lies. You, you, the devil will come to church. The devil will join a Bible study. The devil can dress up so prim and proper and speak so clean you'd never know it was him. Until it comes down to something like this, where Jesus comes 
to destroy the works of the devil. He destroyed in their hearing the right of the devil to convince the scribes and Pharisees that their condemnation, their judgment was justified and at the same time further condemn the scribe of the Pharisees, the, 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 what am I trying to say? The, the Sadducees, no, 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 not Sadducees, not the Pharisees, but the money changers and the sinners, the tax gatherers and sinners. He, he works to keep the tax gatherers and sinners condemned by his use of scripture, by the persona of the religious crowd, to keep the lost condemned. And then he works to keep the ones who are eaten up with condemnation and prejudice convinced that their view is of God. And here comes Jesus. Boxing gloves on, mouthpiece set in the spirit realm. They ding the bell, and he comes in, and he starts destroying the works of the devil. Destroying the sense that if you're lost, you're lost forever. You're too far gone. God will never have time for you. And then, oh, yeah, you're perfectly right. You're perfectly right to never have anything to do with these who need me the most. For this very purpose, the Son of God appeared that he might destroy the works of the devil. So he tells the story of the lost sheep. You remember that? I'm assuming too much maybe. He tells those three stories, lost sheep, lost coin, lost boy. Lost sheep, 99 in a safe place. What man among you, if he's 100 sheep, lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open past, 